Section 12 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Nater. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and James Rudd. Venetians and Crusaders Take Constantinople. A.D. 1204 to 1261. Plunder of the Sacred Relics, A.D. 1204, by Edwin Pierce, Part 1. In the treaty arranged at the end of the Third Crusade, in 1192, it was stipulated that all hostilities between the Christians and the Moslems should cease. The Fourth Crusade, 1196 to 1197, which is sometimes considered merely as a movement supplementary to the Third, forced renewed hostilities against the wishes of the Palestine Christians who preferred that the three years' peace should continue. The Fourth Crusade ended disastrously, those who remained longest to prosecute it being finally cut to pieces at Jaffa in 1197. The travellers returning to the west from Syria besought immediate help for the Christian survivors there. The Byzantine Empire had fallen into decrepitude, and the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem was reduced to a mere strip of coast. Only by prompt action could it be hoped to save any portion of it from complete wreck. Innocent III, who became Pope in 1198, well understood the meaning of the Muslim triumphs. The four crusades had already greatly extended the papal jurisdiction, and Innocent himself was the moving spirit of the fifth, although an ignorant priest named Falk also preached it with a success almost equal to that of Peter the Hermit in the first expedition. Vast numbers of warriors took the cross, though no king and only a few minor princes joined them. Most famous among the leaders were Boniface II, Marquis of Montferrat, and Baldwin IV, Count of Flanders. Venice joined the crusaders under the lead of her doge, Henry Dandolo, then more than ninety years old. When ambassador at the Byzantine court, in 1173, he was blinded by order of the Emperor Manuel I, and revenge was probably one of the motives which took him again to the east. The Venetians, being asked to transport the crusaders, demanded an extortionate price. But as Venice was the only power possessing the necessary ships, a contract was made with her for the service in 1201. Immediately the Venetians, by a secret treaty with Egypt, for the sake of commercial privileges, betrayed the crusaders to the Moslems. Embarkation from Venice in the summer of 1202 was made very difficult, and many intending crusaders went home in disgust. Still Venice insisted upon the full price, but money to pay it was wanting, and in spite of the Pope and many of the bitter spirits, a bargain was struck. The crusaders agreed to help the Venetians in taking and plundering Zara, a rival Christian city on the eastern coast of the Adriatic. Zara was accordingly captured, ultimately to be destroyed by the Venetians, who next drew some of the crusaders into a plot to overthrow the Byzantine emperor Alexius IV, and place his son on the throne. By this means the Venetians thought to make good their promise to frustrate the crusade, and at the same time to obtain great commercial advantages at Constantinople. Thus was the pilgrim host, quote, changed from a crusading army into filibustering expedition, end quote. Having wintered at Zara, the crusaders were landed, in June 1203, under the walls of Constantinople. The emperor was deposed by his own people, and his son, Alexius V, crowned during a revolution in the city, which followed an unsuccessful attack by the crusaders in July. 
the second and successful assault in april twelve o four with its sequel of pillage and debauchery forms the subject of pierce's brilliant narrative the city during these troubles suffered from two fires of which the second in july twelve o three deserves to be reckoned among the great historical conflagrations of the world the preparations which the leaders had been pushing on during several weeks were completed in april twelve o four and that day was chosen for an assault upon constantinople instead of attacking simultaneously a portion of the harbour walls and a portion of the landward walls venetians and crusaders alike directed their efforts against the defences on the side of the harbour the horses were embarked once more in the huissiers the line of battle was drawn up the huissiers and galleys in front the transports a little behind and alternating between the huissiers and the galleys the whole length of the line of battle was upward of half a league and stretched from the blasherm to beyond the petrion the emperor's vermilion tent had been pitched on the hill just beyond the district of the petrion where he could see the ships when they came immediately under the walls before him was the district which had been devastated by the fire on the morning of the ninth the ships drawn up in the order described passed over from the north to the south side of the harbour the crusaders landed in many places and attacked from a narrow strip of the land between the walls and the water then the assault began in terrible earnest along the whole line amid the din of the imperial trumpets and drums the attackers endeavoured to undermine the walls while others kept up a continual rain of arrows bolts and stones the ships had been covered with blanks and skins so as to defend them from the stones and from the famous greek fire and thus protected pushed boldly up to the walls the transports soon advanced to the front and were able to get so near the walls that the attacking parties on the gangways or platforms flung out once more from the ship's tops were able to cross lances with the defenders of the walls and towers the attack took place at upward of a hundred points until noon or according to niketas until evening both parties fought well the invaders were repulsed those who had landed were driven back and amid the shower of stones were unable to remain on shore the invaders lost more than the defenders before night a portion of the vessels had retired out of range of the mangonels while another portion remained at anchor and continued to keep up a continual fire against those on the walls the first day's attack had failed the leaders of both crusaders and venetians withdrew their forces to the galata side the assault had failed and it became necessary at once to determine upon their next step the same evening a parliament was hastily called together some advised that the next attack should be made on the walls on the marmora side which were not so strong as those facing the golden horn the venetians however immediately took an exception which every one who knew constantinople would at once recognize as unanswerable on that side the current is always much too strong to allow vessels to be anchored with any amount of steadiness or even safety there were some present who would have been very well content that the current or a wind no matter what should have dispersed the vessels provided that they themselves could have left the country and have gone on their way it was at length decided that the two following days the tenth and eleventh should be devoted to repairing their damages and that a second assault should be delivered on the twelfth the previous day was a sunday and boniface and dandolo made use of it to appease the discontent in the rank and file of the army the bishops and abbots were set to work to preach against the greeks they urged that the war was just 
that the Greeks had been disobedient to Rome and had perversely been guilty of schism in refusing to recognize the supremacy of the Pope, and that Innocent himself desired the union of the two churches. They saw in the defeat the vengeance of God on account of the sins of the Crusaders. The loose women were ordered out of the camp, and for better security were shipped and sent far away. Confession and communion were enjoined, and, in short, all that the clergy could do was done to prove that the cause was just, to quiet the discontented, and to occupy them until the attack next day. The warriors had, in the meantime, been industriously repairing their ships and their machines of war. A slight, but not unimportant, change of tactics had been suggested by the assault on the ninth. Each transport had been assigned to a separate tower. The number of men who could fight from the gangways, or platforms thrown out from the tops, had been found insufficient to hold their own against the defenders. The modified plan was, therefore, to lash together, opposite each tower to be attacked, two ships containing gangways to be thrown out from their tops, and thus concentrate a greater force against each tower. Probably, also, the line of attack was considerably shorter than at the forced assault. On Monday morning, the 12th, the assault was renewed. The tent of the emperor had been pitched near the monastery of Pantepoptis, one of the many which were in the district of the Petrion, extending along the Golden Horn from the palace of Blashern, about one-fourth of its length. From this position he could see all the movements of the fleet. The walls were covered with men who were ready again to fight under the eye of their emperor. The assault commenced at dawn and continued with the utmost fierceness. Every available crusader and Venetian took part in it. Each little group of ships had its own special portion of the wall with its towers to attack. The besiegers during the first portion of the day made little progress, but a strong north wind sprang up which enabled the vessels to get nearer the land than they had previously been. Two of the transports, the Pilgrim and the Parvis, lashed together, succeeded in throwing one of their gangways across to a tower in the Petrion, and opposite the position occupied by the Emperor. A Venetian and a French knight, André Dubois, immediately rushed across and obtained a foothold. They were at once followed by others, who fought so well that the defenders of the tower were either killed or fled. The example gave new courage to the invaders. The knights who were in the Huisiers, as soon as they saw what had been done, leaped on shore, placed their ladders against the wall, and shortly captured four towers. Those on board the fleet concentrated their efforts on the gates, broke in three of them, and entered the city, while others landed their horses from the Huisiers. As soon as a company of knights was formed, they entered the city through one of these gates, and charged for the emperor's camp. Murzuflos had drawn up his troops before his tents, but they were unused to contend with men in heavy armor, and after a fairly obstinate resistance, the imperial troops fled. The emperor, says Niketas, who is certainly not inclined to unduly praise the emperor, who had deprived him of his post of Grand Logotet, did his best to rally his troops, but all in vain, and he had to retreat toward the palace of the lion's mouth. The number of the wounded and dead was sans fin et sans mesure. An indiscriminate slaughter commenced. The invaders spared neither age nor sex. In order to render themselves safe, they set fire to the city lying to the east of them, and burned everything between the monastery of Everietis and the quarter known as Drungarios. So extensive was the fire, which burned all night and until next evening, that, according to the marshal, more houses were destroyed than there were in the three largest cities in France. 
the tents of the emperor and the imperial palace of blasherm were pillaged the conquerors making their headquarters on the same side at pantepopolis it was evening and already late when the crusaders had entered the city and it was impossible for them to continue their work of destruction through the night they therefore encamped near the walls and towers which they had captured baldwin of flanders spent the night in the vermilion tent of the emperor his brother henry in front of the palace of blasherm boniface the marquis of montferrat on the other side of the imperial tents in the heart of the city the city was already taken the inhabitants were at length awakened out of the dream of security into which seventeen unsuccessful attempts to capture the new rome had lulled them every charm pagan and christian had been without avail the easy sloth into which the possession of innumerable relics and the consciousness of being under the protection of an army of saints and martyrs had plunged a large part of the inhabitants had been rudely dispelled the panhagia of the blasherm with its relic of the virgin's robe the host of heads arms bodies and vestments of saints and of portions of the holy cross had been of no more use than the palladium which lay buried then as now under the great column which constantine had built the rough energy of the westerns had disregarded the talismans of the greek church as completely as those of paganism in vain had the believers in these charms destroyed during the siege the statues that were believed to be of ill omen or unlucky the invaders had a superstition as deep as their own but with the difference that they could not believe that a people in schism could have the protection of the hierarchy of heaven or be regarded as the rightful possessors of so many relics during the night following its capture the golden gate which was at the marmora side of the landward walls had been opened and already an affrighted crowd was pressing forward to make its escape from the captured city others were doing their best to bury their treasures the emperor himself either seized with panic or finding that all was lost as indeed everything was lost so soon as the army had succeeded in obtaining a foothold within the walls fled from the city he too escaped by the golden gate taking with him the euphrosine the widow of alexis the brave theodore lascaris determined however to make one more attempt his appeal to the people was useless those who were not panic-stricken appear to have been indifferent some at least were apparently still dreaming of a mere change of rulers like those of which the majority of them had seen several but before any attempt at reorganization could be made the enemy was in sight and theodore himself had to fly the crusaders had expected another day's fighting and knew nothing of the flight of the murzuflos to their surprise they encountered no resistance the day was occupied in taking possession of their conquest the byzantine troops laid down their arms on receiving assurances of personal safety the italians who had been expelled took advantage of the entry of their friends and appeared to have retaliated upon the population for their expulsion two thousand of the inhabitants says gunther were killed and mostly by these returned italians as the victorious crusaders passed through the streets women old men and children who had been unable to flee met them and placing one finger over another so as to make the sign of the cross hailed the marquis of montferrat as king while a hastily gathered procession with the cross and the sacred emblems of christ greeted him in triumph then began the plunder of the city the imperial treasury and the arsenal were placed under guard but with these exceptions the right to plunder was given indiscriminately to the troops and sailors 
Never in Europe was a work of pillage more systematically and shamelessly carried out. Never by the army of a Christian state was there a more barbarous sack of a city than that perpetrated by these soldiers of Christ, sworn to chastity, pledged before God not to shed Christian blood, and bearing upon them the emblem of the Prince of Peace. Reciting the crimes committed by the crusaders, Niketas says, with indignation, you have taken up the cross, and have sworn on it, and on the holy gospels, to us that you would pass over the territory of Christians without shedding blood, and without turning to the right hand or to the left. You told us that you had taken up arms against the Saracens only, and that you would steep them in their blood alone. You promised to keep yourselves chaste, while you bore the cross, as became soldiers enrolled under the banner of Christ. Instead of defending his tomb, you have outraged the faithful who are members of him. You have used Christians worse than the Arabs used the Latins, for they at least respected women. An immense mass of treasure was found in each of the imperial palaces and in those of the nobles. Each baron took possession of the castle or palace which was allotted to him, and put a guard upon the treasure which was found there. Never since the world was created, says the marshal, was there so much booty gained in one city. Each man took the house which pleased him, and there were enough for all. Those who were poor found themselves suddenly rich. There was captured an immense supply of gold and silver, of plate and of precious stones, of satins and of silk, of furs, and of every kind of wealth ever found upon earth. The sack of the richest city in Christendom, which had been the bribe offered to the crusaders to violate their oaths, was made in the spirit of men who, having once broken through the trammels of their vows, are reckless to what lengths they go. Their abstinence and their chastity once abandoned, they plunged at once into orgies of every kind. The last of the army spared neither maiden nor the virgin dedicated to God. Violence and debauchery were everywhere present cries and lamentations and the groans of the victims were heard throughout the city for everywhere pillage was unrestrained and lust unbridled the city was in wild confusion nobles old men women and children ran to and fro trying to save their wealth their honour or their lives knights foot soldiers and venetian sailors jostled each other in a mad scramble for plunder threats of ill-treatment promises of safety if wealth were disgorged mingled with the cries of many sufferers these pious brigands as gunther aptly calls them acted as if they had received a license to commit every crime sword in hand houses and churches were pillaged every insult was offered to the religion of the conquered citizens churches and monasteries were the richest storehouses and were therefore the first buildings to be rifled monks and priests were selected for insult the priests robes were placed by the crusaders on their horses the icons were ruthlessly torn down from the screens or were broken the sacred buildings were ransacked for relics or their beautiful caskets the chalices were stripped of their precious stones and converted into drinking cups the sacred plate was heaped with ordinary plunder the altar cloths and the screens of cloth of gold richly embroidered and bejewelled were torn down and either divided among the troops or destroyed for the sake of the gold and silver which were woven into them the altars of hagia sophia which had been the admiration of all men were broken for the sake of the material of which they were made horses and mules were taken into the church in order to carry off the loads of sacred vessels and the gold and silver plates of the throne the pulpits and the doors and the beautiful ornaments of the church 
the soldiers made the chief church of Christendom the scene of their profanity. A prostitute was seated in the patriarchal chair, who danced and sang a ribald song for the amusement of the soldiers. Niketas, in speaking of the desecration of the great church, writes with the utmost indignation of the barbarians who were incapable of appreciating and therefore respecting its beauty. To him it was an quote, earthly heaven, a throne of divine magnificence, an image of the firmament created by the Almighty. End quote. The plunder of the same church in 1453 by Mahomet II compares favorably with that made by the Crusaders of 1204. The sack of the city went on during the three days after the capture. An order was issued, probably on the third day, by the leaders of the army for the protection of women. Three bishops had pronounced excommunication against all who should pillage church or convent. It was many days, however, before the army could be reduced to its ordinary condition of discipline. A proclamation was made throughout the army that all the booty should be collected in order to be divided fairly among the captors. Three churches were selected as depots, and trusty guards of crusaders and Venetians were stationed to watch what was thus brought in. Much, however, was kept back and much stolen. Stern measures had to be resorted to before order was restored. Many crusaders were hanged. The Count of St. Paul hanged one of his own knights with his shield round his neck because he had not given up the booty he had captured. A contemporary writer, the continuator of the history of William of Tyre, forcibly contrasts the conduct of the crusaders before and after the capture. When the Latins would take Constantinople, they held the shield of God before them. It was only when they had entered that they threw it away and covered themselves with the shield of the devil. The Italians, resident in Constantinople, who had returned to the city with their countrymen, were conspicuous in their hostility to the Greeks. Amid this resentment there were examples, however, that former friendships were not forgotten. The escape of Niketas himself is an illustration in point. He had held the position of Grand Logotheth, but he had been deposed by Murzuflos. When the Latins entered the city, he had retired to a small house near Hagia Sophia, which was so situated as to be likely to escape observation. His large house, and probably his official residence, which he is careful to tell us was adorned with an abundant store of ornaments, had been burned down in the second fire. Many of his friends found refuge with him, apparently regarding his dwellings as specially adapted for concealment. Nothing, however, could escape the observation of the horde which was now ransacking every corner. When the Italians had been banished from the city, Niketas had sheltered a Venetian merchant with his wife and family. This man now clothed himself like a soldier, and, pretending that he was one of the invaders, prevented his countrymen, or any other Latins, from entering the house. For some time he was successful, but at length a crowd, principally of French soldiers, pushed past and flocked within. From that time, protection became impossible. End of section 12